The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Business. I'm Adit Chakraborty. On this week's podcast, we look at how the internet is radically changing business and our behaviour as consumers. Is our excess of free time allowing the creation of crucial new business ideas? And are we really going to have just one identity, as Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg plans? This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio today, we've got The Guardian's business editor, Dan Roberts, columnist Julian Glover, and the writer Clay Shirky. Clay's new book is called Cognitive Surplus, Creativity and Generosity in a Connected Age. Clay, cognitive surplus is a neat phrase, but what good is it? Well, it's good for all kinds of things. It's good for lolcats and it's good for Wikipedia. The idea of cognitive surplus is it's the cumulative free time and talents of the developed world, which is well over a trillion hours a year, uh, coupled with a medium that lets us do things collaboratively. So in a way, any project we see that is created by people participating, uh, often at large scale, in some cases global scale, and then freely shared is a result of that cognitive surplus. So it's anything from from photos on on Flickr and videos on YouTube, uh, all the way up to civilian-created crime maps where people are going and saying, you know, we're creating the map the police isn't showing us so we can find the, you know, we can sort of surface the tacit information we have. All of that relies on this, this, this ability to participate. Is it anything more than the Californian thing? Uh, yes, it's actually spread quite widely. Uh, in fact, one of the things I do in talks in America is, is and I never make a big deal of this, is I, I, I do a talk on cognitive surplus in which I use no stories from the United States. So Ushahidi, which is a crowd mapping platform that was invented in Kenya, has spread worldwide. There was a protest uh, that, that shook the Korean government and forced Lee Myung-bak to cost his entire cabinet to resign, uh, coordinated in South Korea on the, the fan side of a boy band. These examples are now global. The ability to have collaborative networks um, has has moved beyond the kind of uh, California moonbeam stage and into into the real world. All of this consumer engagement, what does it mean for businesses? Well, so one of the things it means is that the consumers are not just consumers anymore, and that's particularly true in the media environment. We've had a world in which the professionals can produced and the amateurs consumed, now we've got a world where professionals and amateurs are, are producing and consuming side by side. The, the change in the media landscape is fairly obvious. For other businesses, there's, a, there's an interesting story about a camera in the United States. One of our drugstore chains tried to sell a disposable video camera. And of course, everybody bought it and took it home, didn't return it, and they just started retrofitting it. The engineers took it apart and started saying, oh, you can, you can buy this $30 camera, which is really a $150 camera. The drugstore chain treated this as a kind of crisis of marketing and communications. They were going to educate the customer, which is, you know, whenever a business says they're going to educate the customer, that's the sign that they've completely run out of ideas. But the people who made the camera said, hang on, people want to own this thing? And they they created the flip camera, this this one-button video camera. So the people who treated the internet as another channel for marketing and communications completely missed the story. The business that treated the internet as free R&D, on the other hand, invented a market. So we're used to a communications landscape that's only owned by advertisers and marketers. Now we've got a communications landscape where what the consumers are doing with one another matters all across the business, not just for Marcom. Dan Roberts, your head of business, do you think that what Clay's talking about is more of an advertising marketing thing, or do you think it actually is changing the way that 
manufacturers are doing doing business. No, I, I think you're onto something. I think you're on something with a really spooky title, by the way. Can I just say Cognitive Surplus, to my mind, brings to mind... You Remember that in The Matrix, they kind of plug people's yeah. heads into... Ba- they make, oh, they make people into batteries. I'm kind of thinking that ultimately this is all one big kind of plot to, to use our brainwaves to sort of power computers. Anyway, but no, I think you're on something, and I think it's, it's very... It's, it's certainly at a time of enormous doom and gloom in the world economy and my world. It's, it's great to have any optimism, frankly. Um, I also the reason why I think you're onto something though is because it chimes with what we hear a lot of in other in other fields, particularly in the world economy at the moment, which is this notion of surplus. There is an increasing school of thought that actually the, the thing that caused the Great Crash was not the deficit nations, but was the surplus nations. I mean, it's another one for another conversation for another day. That actually too much saving in Japan and in China and, and, and Germany was the source of all the excess liquidity in the world that caused the credit bubble. Um, you could extend the analogy to think about you know diseases of affluence like obesity, and, and that actually you know we're all just we have physical surplus. Plus, we just don't have to lift bags of coal around anymore, so we 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 wither and we get fat, and you know. And I think that there's there's elements to to what you're saying about use of leisure time. That you're absolutely right to identify this this leisure time as a, one of society's greatest resources, and the internet is freeing that up. So I, I do find it uplifting. Yeah, Julian Glover, break up this loving. If it were the case that we're all going around being engaged as Clay and Dan uh, would have us, then. Why is it that we vote once every four years and even then we struggle to get out and vote? And why is it that the Tories talk about, implore us to start that startup thing called a big society? I think because running against all of this, and clearly there are amazing products, so in Wikipedia, this is a much quoted one, is a human desire for hierarchy, authority and boundaries. And I think there is a great human instinct to collaborate and help and learn and share, but we also want to be told what to do. And we're never going to resolve that tension. So we look to government to assist us. We look to government to create the big society. Government looks to us to create it too. And and we stand around both wondering what on earth it means. And so there is always that feeling somebody else should be structuring it. So once these great networks begin, they tend to take on formality. So Wikipedia quite quickly gets different levels of hierarchy and people are seen to be doing too much or they're given status or they're blocked or, and it suddenly starts to get creaky. And, and the risk for all of these is, is, is we, we want flat equality, but that isn't how the human brain works. And, 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 and even in the media, we, we talk very much, we mean it, about mutualising. We talk about the Guardian's a mutual organisation. Our readers come to us because they see us as a body of authority and they see it as a body which has an edited boundary. They also want to take part in it and certainly we can share. I'm not saying it just has to be us lecturing down. But they do want there to be a platform where somebody else decides the rules. And we heard that finally in politics. The Tory party said, start your own school if you want. We'll give you a bit of money. You can get an old building. We'll change the planning laws. You know, make it simple. And people said, or at least some people are saying, but I'm busy. I don't want to start a school. I want someone else to start it. And then I'll send my kid there. So there's that conflict. It's always going to be there. Clay, I want to come back to you and get your reaction to what Julian's has said in a second. But I confess, we were casting around sceptics. And we found one hiding out in a forest in Belarus. Oh, His yes. name's Yevgeny Morozov. Yeah. And he's left you this voicemail. Well, hi, Clay. Uh, I've read your new book, uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit, even though I found quite a few places uh, where I disagree with your scissors. And my main problem has been identifying uh, what is the ultimate criteria by which uh, you know, all of those changes in the media space that you're outlining have to be evaluated. 
in order to compare the current environment, which you know the internet has brought in front of us, uh, with the environment we had, say, 20 or 30 years ago, we can't just look at what has happened to you know the creative potential of uh, the users in ter- you know in case of the internet or the audiences in terms of television again if you start with the conception of democracy as your ultimate social good you also have to look at whether people and you know in this case voters and citizens are more informed are more likely to take uh, reasonable decisions are more likely to participate in politics and it's a much broader uh, menu of uh, you know changes that you have to look at anyone who would read your book the message that they draw from it is that the internet is rosy everything is great and will end up with much more proactive creative and democratically minded uh, citizens and of course that's not the whole story I mean you have to paint in uh, much broader strokes and you have to dig much deeper uh, to tell the whole story Clay there you have it you're all struck by the technology and as Julian would say you've got no real understanding of how humans interact with each other What's your defense? Well, so to, to take in reverse order to, to, to talk to Julian, I think the desire for hierarchy, the desire for structure is, in fact, I think you're absolutely right, the tension doesn't resolve itself. But to say that there's a desire for structure or that Wikipedia has had to take on structures to deal with things like biographies of living persons as it's grown is not to say that it's become the same as Britannica. In a way... When you look around at print culture, right, when you look at what we're used to from print culture, what you see is that a lot of print culture, the idea of disciplinary boundaries in the academy or the distinction between periodicals and books that we make, that's not a response to print. That's a response to the problem print caused. So I think we're in the phase of the web where we're starting to see what the structural advantages and what the structural limits of it are. And we're certainly returning to more structured, more hierarchical efforts as these things grow. But it's not, it's not a repeat of what we had before. So we're not going back to where we were. No. In, in, in a way, you know, history doesn't, history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes. So I think the tension between, between freedom and structure is, is, as Julian says, permanent. But that doesn't say that any one set of structures is ideally suited to any one age. If that was true, the Catholic Church would still be the pan-European force, when in fact the printing press created a need for a whole bunch of new structures. My, my thesis, baldly stated, is that the web is doing the same thing as print, which is to say requiring a new set of structures. There. Okay, and now come to Yevgeny's point, yeah, which so, is so Evgeny, technology in its own doesn't really change things, doesn't make people democratic. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, well, so the, I, I was going to say, I'm not sure that the, the former point is Evgeny's. I think, the, I think the latter is. Evgeny and I have been having this debate over the course of a year, and I think one of the things that, that frustrates both of us is that particularly on the national stage, which is the place where he and I, he and I most converse, we're still in the world of dueling anecdotes. Right, I say Moldova. He says Belarus. Right. I mean, you know, there there are examples even within race you Kiev. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> even within the Eastern European context, there are examples of both uh, successful and failed uses of social media to protest uh, authoritarian dictators. So there is no recipe. Right. There is no simple tool by which you can cause a political movement to come into being. Uh, I think one of the places he and I differ. Reading reading his Boston Review review mm. uh, of cognitive surplus. He goes after my telling of the of the mad cow protests in South Korea, and he points and, out that actually they were piggybacking off a television report. Right. And that's, 
Right. Uh, no, so it was old media, really, that led the way, and new media just piggybacked? Well, yeah, so I think it, it, it's not even a question, I think, of old media leading the way and new media piggybacking so much as traditional media, broadcast media, has rarely created protest movements. Protest movements are created by people convincing each other to go out in the streets. Broadcast media is not typically the thing that gets, gets people to mobilize. It's this information cascade of people learning from other people that people are turning out and the protest, the protest grows. Um, so my hypothesis, uh, you know, in, both in the first book and now, is that the difference between 20th and 21st century protest dynamics in South Korea is caused by the difference between 20th and 21st century media dynamics. Evgeny, I think, regards those effects as being relatively minor, whereas I regard them as being quite quite significant. I think he also regards them as being somewhat catastrophic for South Korean democracy, which is to say he believes that the students who turned out for the candlelight vigils got it wrong on, on sort of technocratic issues about the, the safety of beef. My point of view, on the other hand, is that those students were objecting to the lack of democratic representation. So I, I think, and I think Evgeny would disagree with me, but I think they were, they were exhibiting exactly the kind of democratic commitment that he is looking for. And I think that, I think that that's, that's the evidence that we can, we can find. But Clay, you're, 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 you're giving us very good, serious examples of protest movements, and who cannot, you know, heart warms to hear of this. I, I fear, though, a lot of this spreading out is going to be a loss of seriousness. We're going to end up with a wide and shallow enthusiasm for quite a lot of things, nothing done in very great depth, Compared. potential for all sorts of depth, but not actually happening. And we even see it inside the media, even inside this holy building we're in today, mm-hmm. where some of the best viewed bits of our website are things like a, a Lego, or as I think we're supposed to say, plastic brick assembly football matches, which now the conversation about this dominates the morning conference each day. <laughs> I don't see this as a growth of great intelligence shared coming together. I see this as something fairly depressing and superficial. And you often see that in the comments on online threads. And there there can be a drowning out of seriousness as well as a coming together of it. Compared to what, though, has always been my question. Compared to the letters page of a newspaper. Compared to a period of journalism which didn't exist for all of history, but but certainly did for a while, which is no no longer financed by the revenue it raises and is in the state of collapse, as we see with Le Monde de France. That's a a different question. You're, You're now comparing a world in which only professionals talk to a world in which professionals and amateurs talk. My comparison is amateurs to amateurs. Well, there won't be any professionals. That's the problem. But that's a different problem. That's not... It still is a problem, though. But the fact that other bad things are happening doesn't affect this... This is a a consequence of this development. The two things are linked. No, no, I understand that. But but institutions collapse when media changes. It happened to the scribes, too. That is off the table. This earlier observation, you're saying, oh, it's terrible that people are making these Lego things and sharing them. My question is, compared to watching 25 hours of television a week... Even the non-serious stuff is better than doing nothing. But not if the non-serious stuff can consists basically of, of breaking windows, which is what Julian's talk, talking about. He's talking about the broken windows theory of media, where nowadays, if there isn't that much seriousness around, then why should, other, why should amateurs feel the need to be serious? That would be a, a sensible hypothesis, except for the fact that the most important reference work in the English language created in the last 10 years has been created by amateurs, right? If there were no effusions of the serious work, you could say the silly work is crowding it out. Mm. But even with the sacred printing press, right, we got erotic novels 150 years before we got scientific journals. We always get the silly stuff first with any new medium. It happened with the paperback, right? The, the question is, given that we've now got an abundance where we can have the silly stuff and the serious stuff at the same time, what value are we going to get out of the serious stuff? I, I, I'm saying that this is an improvement over 
25 hours of passive consumption a week and that there's an opportunity for society. Dan? I also think you're slightly talking at cross purposes because this applies best, I think, to the commercial world, not the political world. The great advantage of the political world is it's accepted that many countries do get a vote, that everybody's voice does count in some way. And yet in the commercial world, Mm. for the last hundred years, the only way in which um, consumers have been allowed to express themselves is in a very kind of binary, Mm. I will buy that, I won't buy that sort of way. And all of a sudden, in all sorts of industries, um, that ability to kind of shape the product you're consuming, to in fact produce the product that you're consuming is suddenly opened up and actually again going back to this sense of you know these are problems these are nice problems to have these are problems of affluence in relatively stable societies deciding every four years who runs the government is not going to keep you busy you know actually we spend most of our lives doing quite trivial things living doing quite ordinary things but we have been doing them in a very passive way and that the internet gives us a way to actually engage in all those things and shape that environment that we're living in i'm very doubtful Um, this evidence of this great collective um, serious world does exist. What, I mean, watching a video about somebody playing Lego doesn't seem to be particularly active. It doesn't seem to be any more active than watching a rather bad TV. No, I don't think anybody's putting forward watching videos as compared to watching videos as the comparison. I mean, the but cri- that's the most successful thing we've done on the site. So that is what people are consuming. Right, but but the the shift here isn't from one kind of consumption to another. We the didn't... shift is an expansion from a diet of pure consumption to a diet that inclu- also includes production and sharing. If you look at comment is free, you can find the people who are having engaged conversations that you all support in a way that couldn't have existed before. I think you find that some of the time. I think if you look at comment right, is free, as opposed a lot of the to time, none of the time prior. I, I think what you find a lot of the time is a small number of people blogging obsessively abu- yes. abuse about yes. each other, driving right. out um, the people who do want to be serious. And one of the things I find with I write for comment is free on, on the blog, and I want to take part in threads, is that it doesn't encourage you unless you just want to share abuse, and that. It's finding structures that aren't about abuse; they're about encouragement. Right. is very tricky, and we haven't got there yet. No, no question. No, and and the the in fact, I was talking to the communist free people last time I was here. Right, the the need to find structures that let uh, the people minded to do well to have a conversation with one with one another, respectful, uh, even if even if disagreement is core. I think your earlier part about both both hierarchy and freedom. But the, that still represents, I mean, comment is free, represents a, a, a novel opportunity and a novel entrant in political discourse, not possible without this medium. Okay, let's stop talking about this company for a second and talk about another. Facebook is the world's biggest social media website. And for his new book, The Facebook Effect, the writer David Kirkpatrick was given unprecedented access to Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg. If you say you are a believer in something or you do something on Facebook, you can't go around the world pretending otherwise. And, you know, this is closely connected to something that Zuckerberg says, you have one identity, he says. And again, this is a controversial view that many in my generation, the baby boom, do not accept, which is that the persona you show at work should be the same one you show at home, should be the same one you show walking down the street, should be the same one you show, I mean, in effect, by their logic, in the sex club, and, and, so, or, and vice versa. So, you know, that is not the way most of us live our lives. And, and Zuckerberg's, a lot of the changes he's brought to Facebook that have led to so much controversy in the privacy realm have really come about because he holds this set of beliefs. If you look at the history of mankind, people's lives historically have primarily been conducted in small towns and villages. 
And in small towns and villages, everybody was in everybody's business. Everybody knew what each other was doing because they could see it. They could hear it through the wall. In the favela or, you know, in the hut next door, they could tell when they were having sex, whatever. They knew what was going on. And we've now moved to cities, and that's the majority of mankind now lives in cities. So it's interesting to me that we're now seeing these digital tools emerge that give us a more efficient sort of free disclosure of data uh, in a way that's not dissimilar to what we had in the small towns uh, that's now electronically mediated. So you could say it's back to the future in a certain sense. David Kirkpatrick there. Clay Shirky, this idea of radical transparency, that we're one person, whether we're down the pub on a Saturday night or in the office on a Monday morning, is that really where we're all headed? Oh, well, it's, first of all, it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. It is, I think, to anybody who has uh, an adult life, uh, it's obviously not true. We switch behaviors and we switch contexts all the time. The great, uh, the great sociologist of, of public dramaturgy, Erwin Goffman, talked about the presentation of self in everyday life and just documents in a way that is almost like a book-length refutation of Zuckerberg's hypothesis. I smell a rat. He has never said anything like that until after the privacy debacle. I think he is trying to retroactively fill in an excuse for them biasing their users towards much more public sharing because it's good for traffic. So that's a post hoc rationalization. I think it is absolutely. Dana Boyd said it best, I think. She said the fight here is not between liberals and libertarians. The fight is between robots and monkeys, right? Robots are, you know, Zuckerberg is in the robot camp, right? It's information. Information should be shared. All information is good. Let's, if it's got information, put it out there. Monkeys, on the other hand, have private lives. Dan, that's fine, except Facebook is the biggest social media website around. Google, which is probably the, the biggest internet company around, Eric Schmidt, who's ahead of that, has said something very similar. It's the case that we're handing over data, that we're handing over bits of our lives now to people whose view of what they should be doing with them is very different from what you and I might think about what they should do with them. I think there's two separate issues there. Though. I mean, I think the privacy issue is a very important one. And I think the backlash is already happening and is self-correcting. People are reluctant to sort of um, wear their entire lives in, in, in public. But I do think, just to go back to this conversation about engaging with SIF readers, for example, I think one of the problems is the tone of voice, that as professionals, we spend decades arming ourselves up with layers for sort of professional qualifications and sort of you know and then we talk in a tone of voice that is kind of you know doesn't brook dissent and wading into a below the line conversation on SIF requires stripping all of that away and going back to kind of like well I'm just another you know guy with a with a view and and yes I have a little badge that says I work for the Guardian but I basically have to take some of you on and and I don't th- I mean I think the aggression is is an element and we need to find ways of getting aggression out but some of it is basically just sort of uh, I think the reason we struggle with it is because we, we don't yet have that tone of voice because we have a, there's a kind of fake tone of voice that we mm. adopt when we're writing in the paper but specifically um, on that issue of privacy I think it, it's true that the technology is stripping away privacy in ways people don't realise yeah. but, but people who comment online are often trying to use anom- anonymous names well, so, so there's, a, there's a desire, for, there's a desire for people to hide their identity whilst at the same time they're engaging with technology that removes all privacy but, but I think there is an argument that the comment would, would improve dramatically if people were basically talk, talking as themselves rather than some random string of letters. Is that but a legacy even, of early days of internet, that, that idea of slightly sort of nerdy names that people come up with? Who you, just, you know, you know I, I think I, anything that's nerdy is probably a legacy of the early days. But I think <laughs> the fact that I think the fact that the uh, the medium didn't ship uh, with any native conception of human identity because it was designed to be computer to computer communication rather than person to person. And the very painful layering backwards of identity onto the existing network is is proving to be quite 
quite hard. Uh, but I think there is something to be said for people speaking under their own names makes conversations more civil. But I think the two questions we have to ask ourselves are, do we want to force that or allow that, and, and not for the internet as a whole, but space by space? And two, do we want everyone to have the same identity universally linkable across all behavior online? And it is that latter thing that, that Zuckerberg has come out four square in favor of that strikes me as astonishingly pernicious. Okay, last word to you then, Clay. Um, this entire conversation is broken down quite neatly, actually, between you and Dan on the one side and then uh, Julian and Yevgeny Morozov on the other. My new best friend. Although, <laughs> although I have to say, I agree with Julian about the, the permanent tension between freedom and structure. So, so it, the, the disagreement is not total. Absolutely. But then tell me how you think this disagreement will resolve itself over the next few years. Uh, well, so I think the disagreement will resolve itself over the next few years when we see whether or not we get the social structures that make the medium matter more. In Cognitive Surplus, in the book I wrote about the Invisible College, the people who became the Royal Society. And they used the printing press to bolster their demand that scientific results be published and, and vettable. So you look at that and you think, the scientific revolution could not have happened without the printing press, and the printing press did not cause the scientific revolution. It was taking the raw capability of the printing press and wrapping it in the cultural virtues that made science possible. So the book ends with this idea of, you know, lolcats we're going to get for free. That's, that's a solved problem. No one's going to be using the internet and saying, where, oh, where can I have a picture of a cute cat? But the question of whether or not we get things like the scientific revolution, whether we get people taking these tools and creating the kind of civic structures around them that create higher order value, that's, I think, the open question for us. And on that note, let's end this week's podcast. My thanks to my guests, Dan Roberts and Julian Glover, and Clay Shirky, whose new book is called Cognitive Surplus and is published by Alan Lane on the 1st of July. The producer was Ian Chambers. My name's Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.